So we're picking back up with our fall series called Reframe. And I know we make things difficult here at Orchard, uh, but try to hang with us. Kurt taught two weeks ago, um, introduced this series called Reframe and talked about how the scriptures have reframed the way he sees himself. Then we had a week kind of break where we worshiped together at the gathering. And now we're back. And so we're going to spend these next few weeks exploring how God's word, if we engage it, and if we allow it to engage us, can reframe the way that we see life, the way that we see other people, the way we see ourselves and God and the scriptures. And this morning, we're going to look at how it can reframe what it means to be great. And as I thought about this idea of reframe, it reminded me of... Um, the J.B. Phillips Bible my dad owned um, that I kind of stole for him from him a while ago. I recently returned it. And I loved, it's a kind of a British translation. I loved how J.B. Phillips translated Romans 12, verse 2. And I think I have it so you can see what I love about it. Paul writes, Don't let the world around you squeeze you into its mold, but let God remold your minds from within so that you may prove in practice that the plan of God for you is good. Don't let the world around you squeeze you into its mold. Women, when I read that, sometimes my mind, my mind says, don't let the world put its Paris banks on you. I'm sorry that I just needed to share that. Men, if you have no idea what I'm talking about, you can find out later. Don't let the world squeeze you into its mold. And Paul wrote this, I believe, because he knew that our lives will always drift in the wrong direction. They just will, because we have the GPS of Adam and Eve installed in us at the factory. And so the word is the most powerful counteraction we have to that kind of drift, to to that kind of squeezing into the world's mold, and reading and reflecting on the Bible, allowing it to reframe the way that we see ourselves and the way we see life and the way we see the world is the primary way that God transforms us into his image. It is so primary. And this is a church, Orchard Hill Church, filled with people who want to engage the scriptures. Five years or so ago, if you remember, we took this all-church reveal survey where we were asking the church questions about our own spiritual life. And the number one desire of the majority of Orchard Hill people was that they want their church to help them understand the Bible in depth. That was by far the biggest desire that this church has. And we've taken that desire very seriously in the leadership of Orchard. One of the things that flowed out of the results of that study was the daily scripture ministry that started several years ago. And I encourage you, if you haven't signed up for it, you go to the website. You can either go to the website every day and read the scriptures there, or you can have it delivered to your email at some god-awful time in the morning. And we're trying to take down all the hurdles that people have to reading the scriptures. And yet when we look deeper into the data, by self-report, we learn some things that should make us pause for a moment. And the first is that 58% of us, by self-report, say that we read the Bible once a month or less. 51% of us reflect on Scripture, meaning we think about it. We try to apply it to our lives once a month or less. Now, I know the excuses. I mean, I'm too busy. 
I want to. I, I just can't seem to find the time. I don't understand it. I'm not a reader. Can I just read my little devotional? The problem is that we need the scriptures, God's unique word to frame up and help us reframe our lives. Or really, in the end, we're just making things up. And so that's one of the hugest messages I want to get across. If you remember nothing else I said this morning, please remember that. We need the scriptures to reframe our lives or we will drift in the wrong direction. So this morning I want to talk about how the scriptures help us reframe what it means to be great. And we're going to dig into that. But first I want to make a pretty easy to understand statement. The world around us has a pretty easy definition of greatness. Don't you think we can see it everywhere? Whoever is the richest or the strongest or the fastest or the smartest or the most beautiful, the ones with the most privilege who can control other people, the list goes on. Whoever has their own reality show, I don't really understand this. For no reason, you can just have one and people watch you. Fascinating to me. We live in the era of the selfie. I noted recently that Kim Kardashian has a whole book now that she published of selfies of herself. You might want to write this down as a Christmas idea. Um, the title of the book, I looked this up a couple weeks ago and I was like, no way. The title of the book is simply Selfish. A book of selfies of herself called Selfish. Yes. And we get sucked into this vortex every day. We do. We laugh, but we get sucked in. And when it makes its way into the church and into our families and into our marriages and into the places where we work and our communities, we get completely messed up. And we forget that the one we follow gave us the world's greatest reframe on this topic. And it is a topic that came up so often during Jesus' earthly ministry. Here's just one example from the Gospel of Matthew, chapter 18. At that time, the disciples came to Jesus and asked, Who then is the greatest in the kingdom of heaven? And he called a little child to him, and he placed the child among them. And he said, Truly I tell you, unless you change and become like little children, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. Therefore, whoever takes the lowly position of this child, and many translations say, whoever humbles themselves like this child is the greatest in the kingdom of heaven. Now, this was one of the things that Jesus' disciples argued about the most. It's absolutely fascinating when you think about it. Who is the greatest? In fact, some of them had a mom who came and tried to see if maybe her kids were the greatest. That never happens in our day. The disciples argued about it right after the Last Supper, after Jesus had taken on the role of the servant and washed their gross and disgusting feet and then said to him, now go out and serve likewise. They still were asking themselves, who's the greatest? Stunning to me. And it was one of the things that Jesus was most clear on. There is nobody in this world who can read these words of Jesus and think to themselves, I don't know what he means. He was so clear. Matthew 23, verse 11, the words of Jesus. The greatest among you will be your servant. For those who exalt themselves will be humbled. And those who humble themselves will be exalted. 
reframe. The Gospel of Mark, chapter 9, the words of Jesus, anyone who wants to be first must be the very last and the servant of all. Reframe. Gospel of Luke, chapter 9, the words of Jesus, for it is the one who is least among you all who is the greatest. Reframe. So greatness, Jesus said, is about humility and servanthood and being last. This is not hard to understand. It is just really hard to actually do. This is a huge struggle for me, and I'm not saying that just to sound humble, although I do sound kind of humble, don't I? So I feel kind of good about myself. (laughs) There is a part of me, and I believe there is a part of every single one of you that wants to believe that I'm the center of it all, that wants to believe I'm not really a sinner saved by grace like those other people, but somehow kind of lovable and worthy to God on my own. There is a part of me that wants to believe I am secretly, I would never say it out loud, a little bit superior to other people. Did you know that 90% of Americans believe we are above average? Do the math. It's only after you do the math that it gets funny. <laughs> I want to believe, and I do this every day, that other people exist to make my life easier or happier or more comfortable. I so want people to notice me. It's like I never graduated from the slide on the playground where I yelled at my mom over and over, Mom, 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 look at me, look at me, look at me. I want to be recognized and admired. I'm so tempted to do good things for self-serving reasons. I give in to comparison. I want to be first. I want to be served. I don't want to be humbled. I live with a very strong dose of pride in my soul, and it is a cancer. Which is why I'm so doggone happy when my grown kids go back to school and work, because then I am alone and I can convince myself of my own awesomeness again. I have no one to argue with me about it. The sin of pride runs so rampant in me that God has now enrolled me full-time in the graduate school of humility. Because Jesus, whose name I claim, who was in every way God, did not consider equality with God something to be held on to, but instead he humbled himself even to the point of death on a cross, not to condemn the world, but to save the world and to love the world. And he is the one I follow. And he tells me in no uncertain terms that the only way my life can be great is if I serve and if I'm willing to be last and if I'm going to be humble. And I have witnessed the damage that is done in the church when followers of Jesus think there is some other school they can apply to. The school of moving up the ladder, the school of more and more status and power, the school of privilege, the school of I'm a big deal, the school of I deserve it. But the truth is, you and I will never progress beyond the pre-K level of faith in Jesus unless we enroll in the school of humility every day. And we allow God to kill off our human ego and pride. And we allow him to reframe our lives so that we live for him and for others and not for ourselves. This is at the very center of what it means to follow Jesus. And humility is hard. 
And so many of us get confused because we think it means that you just have to be a doormat or that humility means I I say I stink at things all the time or humility means I can't be a leader or I can't, um, you know, voice my opinion. But none of those things is humility. Here's a few definitions that have been really helpful to me. Humility is thinking less about yourself, not thinking less of yourself. Charles Spurgeon, the great preacher, said, humility is making a right estimation of oneself. Paul writes in Romans 12:3 that we need to think of ourselves with sober judgment. Assess yourself realistically. And this is super hard to do. So if you need help with this, I encourage you to go see my friend Carla Chestnut, who's the leader of our college ministry, and just go right up to her and tell her you're struggling with this. She will look you right in the eye. And with love and kindness, she will say to you, you know what? You're not that big of a deal. And after the sting of it, it's like a cold slap in the face. You're so grateful to her because you realize, oh, that's absolutely right. Thank you. So Carla Chestnut, college ministry, go ask her. Humility is self-forgetfulness. And this applies then to those of us who think too much of ourselves as well as those of us who are obsessed with talking about how bad we are at everything. Both miss the mark of humility. A man named John Dixon, I think, hits it as close as he can to the Christian definition of humility. I want you to think about Jesus as, as you listen to this definition. Dixon said, humility is the noble choice to forego your status, to deploy your resources, or use your influence for the good of others before yourself. Now, there are multiple reasons why we should pursue humility, mostly because Jesus tells us to. But I believe even underneath that, even underneath Jesus' command to do this, lies this reality. And that is that God is humble. And we are made in his image, every single one of us. And Paul tells us to be imitators of God. We don't think about or talk about the Trinity, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit very much, but just think about it for a moment with me. Uh, John Ortberg talks about the Trinity very much, and he said this. He said, each member of the Trinity points faithfully and selflessly to the other in a gracious, eternal circle of love. You read through the, the, the scriptures and you see this everywhere. The Son, Jesus, points to the Father. And tells the world, I'm only here to do what the Father asks me to do, to only speak what the Father tells me to speak. The Father glorifies the Son, brings all attention on Him, gives all authority in heaven on earth to Jesus, puts all things under His feet. The Father sends the Holy Spirit, and the Spirit exists to remind us to point to Jesus' teaching. The Spirit points to the Son. The Son points to the Father and to the Spirit. The Father points to the Son. Nobody in the Trinity is asking, who among us is the greatest? There is no hierarchy there. Dallas Willard Writes And remember, this is how we are supposed to live. He says, God exists as Father, Son, and Spirit in a community of greater humility, servanthood, mutual submission, and delight than you and I can possibly imagine. 
The great reframe of the Christian faith is that true greatness is found by imaging the God who made us. And one of the most disarming ways that we image God in a world where everybody is pointing to themselves is by choosing to live in humility. There was this fascinating study of top uh, corporate CEOs in America who took um, uh, companies, international companies, major companies that were struggling, that were dying, and they turned them around. And these researchers looked at what are the traits that these leaders had in common. And surprisingly, even to the researchers, there were two traits that rose above all others that these leaders exhibited. The first was a steely determination. And the second was humility. What if Jesus is right about how we are to live? The greatest among you is the one who serves. Reframe. So there are two ways that we can become more humble. The first is that God will simply humble us. This is my least favorite option of the two. Trust me. And the second is that we are told to humble ourselves. At least four times in the New Testament, I'm sure there are more, this command is given. Humble yourselves. Now this is a tricky pursuit because the minute you think you have succeeded at being humble is the minute you are not humble. So you have to sneak up on it from the side like you're, like you're going to catch it unaware. You've got to sneak up on it like you're about to go pull the tail of a cat or scare it or something. And you can start to do this by developing what I call habits of humility in our ordinary life. Habits are simply things we do over and over again intentionally until they become routine. And habits of humility are things that move us away from pride and self-centeredness and toward humility. Habits are powerful. John Ortberg said, habits eat willpower for breakfast. You see, we can't will ourselves to be humble. Pride runs too deep. But we can, through the power of the Holy Spirit, agree with God to engage in habits that will do what the scripture tells us to do, which is to humble ourselves. And let me tell you the truth. All of these will feel a little bit like death. As you engage in them, you will feel like you're going to die. (laughs) But it is a good death, as Jesus said. It is the kind of death that brings life. So the first habit of humility that we can engage in, and I believe one of the most powerful, is that we can serve. We can serve other human beings. And your pride will hate this. It will say things to you like, I really hope someone sees me doing this, being so selfless and humble. This happened to me the last few weeks. As I've been walking in my neighborhood, I've noticed there's a lot of trash. And as I walk, I complain in my head to God about the trash. And the kind of people who throw the trash and leave the trash and won't pick up the trash. All the while, not doing one thing to do anything about the trash. So one day after doing this for a long time, I went out for a walk. And on the first lawn I walked by, there was a pristine Target bag, unopened, simply laying there. And I literally felt as if God said to me, pick up the trash. Now, I could have passed this off as a, you know, just a random happening until it happened the next day. There was a random high V bag 
pristine sitting there. God said to me, pick up the trash. So I pick up the bag and I'm walking down the street, picking up the trash. And the whole time I'm thinking to myself, I sure hope somebody sees me doing this thing, this picking up the trash. I mean, it's just relentless. And so I realized, you know, the way you have to drive the peg into your pride is to serve secretly and then don't talk about it. Like I just did now telling you about how I picked up the trash. It's very painful. Second thing is that we need to practice letting other people have the last word. Practice letting other people have the last word. There's a story of Sir Edmund Hillary, who was the first person to climb Mount Everest. He went back to the Himalayas, spotted by some tourists, and they asked him if they could take a picture with him, which he agreed. So they handed him an ice pick, which is, I think, must be a tool you use to climb Mount Everest. And he was holding it, and some other tourists walked by, and a man literally went up to Sir Edmund Hillary, not recognizing who he was, and he said to him, excuse me, but... You're holding the ice pick the wrong way, so let me help you. And he rearranged the ice pick. Sir Edmund Hillary, in his humility, simply said, thank you. And the man walked off, and they took a picture. Practice letting other people have the last word. Next habit. Learn to not always have to defend yourself. Practice letting people have the wrong idea about you. Now, this happens at church all the time, and it especially happens to Dave Bartlett. People make up stories, or they have a wrong idea about what they think Dave did or did not do, and they blast him in the church. And yet over and over, I have watched Dave refuse to vindicate himself when I absolutely knew that he could. This is not a sign of weakness. This is a sign of humility, and it is a sign of strength. As St. Augustine said, Lord, deliver me from the lust to vindicate myself. Last two, equally difficult. Practice thinking of others more than you think of yourself. So when you go into any kind of meeting or event or party or family reunion or when you walk in the door at night, if you would just simply say to God, Lord, free me from care for myself. Let me trust me with you. And then could you use me to take care of and attend to and love and serve these other people? Last one is that we should ask God in his kindness on occasion to remind us of of the depth of our own sin. Because when we're aware of the depth of our own sin, it is really difficult to not act humbly toward another human being. So even if you just pick one of these and start engaging it on a regular basis, I believe that God in his kindness will move you toward humility. And the beautiful thing about it is, you may not even know what's happening. Which reminds me of this one last quote about humility. Helen Nielsen, who I don't know who she is, said, Humility is like underwear. Essential. But indecent if it shows. It's going to stick with you, that one. So I want to say this in closing, this one last thing, and it's so important. Charles Spurgeon said, The greatest enemy to the human soul 
is self-righteousness, which makes people look to themselves for their own salvation. The greatest enemy to our soul is self-righteousness, which makes me think I can save myself. It is pride that keeps human beings from fully accepting the grace and forgiveness of Jesus. It is pride that keeps us from becoming a Christian and entering the kingdom of God. It is pride that makes us think we don't really need anybody's help to help us bridge the gap between God and us. And many of us here this morning still believe we have something we can offer to God by way of making ourselves righteous. Some of us think that church attendance is that thing. And if we just come to church, we're somehow made acceptable to God. We are wrong. And we are dangerously wrong. We are actually in grave danger of missing faith. Jesus said, Prostitutes and tax collectors are closer to the kingdom of heaven than those who think themselves good people. Jesus said, I didn't come here for the righteous, meaning again, those people who think they're good enough for God. I came here for sinners and people who are sick and people who are broken. I came here for people who know they need a savior, people who are willing to swallow their pride and humble themselves and bend the knee at the foot of my cross and admit that they cannot save themselves, that they need something bigger than them. They need Jesus work on the cross. They need to be washed clean by his blood. They need the forgiveness that only he can offer. And it is pride, you see, that keeps us from that. It's why C.S. Lewis said every story of conversion is the story of a blessed defeat. And what is defeated in that conversion is our pride. It has to go. To become a Christian, to become a follower of Jesus, we, we must die to ourselves and our own desire to think that we are good enough for God. And then and only then are we free to accept the good gift that Christ came to give us. So I'm going to invite the band out now. We're going to sing um, a song. I want you to stay seated for the first part of it. And even, you know, as we're singing, maybe some of us in this room, longtime churchgoers, it doesn't matter how long you've come, or maybe you walked in here for the first time. But let me ask you, have you never simply bowed your head in humility and said to God, I need you to make me whole? I need you to fix my brokenness to cover my sin. And God, I'm asking you to do that right now. And would you just kill all the prideful attempts in me that think I can make myself good enough for you? Would you just help me surrender to you and accept the finished work on the cross for my behalf? So I invite you, if you'd like to pray that kind of prayer this morning, to use this next song and these next moments of quiet as your opportunity. And for the rest of us who already follow Jesus and who've kind of had that first experience, it's not like we don't still struggle with pride and it gets in our way all the time of the life God wants us to live. So maybe use this as a time of confession. Let me pray. God, I pray right now that you would hear all the prayers of your prideful children, whether they're the prayers of a first-time confession of faith, God, or the prayers 
of those of us who followed you for years but still stumble over our pride. Do business with us during this song, God. Help us to drop our fists and to surrender our life to you and to be done with pride. Amen.